The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered right. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That he, then he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So when I was a child, there was this uh, couple that lived right next door to my family, uh, Ron and Marilyn. I actually have no idea what their last names were. Uh, but Ron and Marilyn were kind of like having built-in grandparents, just one lawn over because if you went any time of the day, you could go and, and knock on their door, and one of them was bound to answer. Uh, you were always hoping it was Marilyn, because if it was Marilyn, then what you were going to get is, in addition to any host of treats and, and goodies, you were going to get access to a vast and wonderful VHS library full of, of tapes that I did not have. If Ron answered the door, you were not going to get any treats, and I'm not even sure that he knew what a VHS was, so you certainly weren't getting one of those either. But what you would get is uh, a conversation that, in hindsight, I was too young to appreciate, and that is a real shame. Because uh, Ron, Ron introduced me to the concept of a pun. Uh, the very first pun I can ever remember hearing in my life came from Ron, and it was brilliant, and he did not get enough uh, enough acclaim for, for his brilliance. Uh, this was that pun. Uh, he said to, I don't remember why, but he said, I never use soap. And I said, well, why not? And he responded, uh, because soap was invented by the devil. 
And I was like, wait, 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 what do you mean? And he goes, well, soap has lie in it, and the devil is the prince of lies, so I don't use soap. That is a man who should have been given a medal in that moment, because that was a man who made a soap pun to a five-year-old. <laughs> I can tell you right now that whatever, however I, I continue to grow as an adult, I want to be the kind of neighbor that will tell possibly esoteric puns to five-year-olds. To five that, is, that is being a good neighbor in my book. Um, Eventually, my family moved away, and uh, so Ron and Marilyn, in my mind, stopped being my neighbor. Because as a, as a child, my concept of what a neighbor was, it was the, the people who lived in the houses directly next door to yours. Uh, it, like, in my, in my mind, I didn't, I thought, technically speaking, if someone lived on the other side of the house, they weren't actually your neighbor. Uh, the neighbor was a specific designation for the people who lived right beside you. But as I, as I got older, that definition began to expand, right? So now, okay, if you live two houses over, we are neighbors. If you live on the same street, we're neighbors. Eventually, even if you live a few streets over, we can be neighbors. Uh, over time, uh, the metaphorical application of the concept of a neighbor became appropriate, right? Begin uh, recognizing people I went to school with or friends or family who lived far away as being neighbors. And, you know, eventually it also scales up to uh, being able to just, just as easily, you know, refer to someone as, oh, my neighbor from the north, if they're Canadian, or our neighbors across the pond. But as a result, the, the, the concept of a neighbor over time lost or lacked definition, uh, really, you know, the, the precision that it had when I was, when I was a child. Uh, and so as, as a result, I'll tell you, I really, uh, probably to a, to, a, to a fault, identify with the lawyer from this morning's gospel passage. Uh, because if this guy is not just the most persnickety individual, uh, he gives, he asks Jesus what it takes to inherit eternal life. Jesus asks him, what do you think? He gives the right answer, and Jesus commends him and goes, spot on, you got it. But he's got he's to push it just a little bit further. Right, so he, he, he asks, okay, but who's really my neighbor? And you almost get the expectation that this guy is, is thinking Jesus is about to write him a list of names and goes, well, as long as you love these people as yourself, you fulfilled the commandment, you're good to go. Uh, and, and I know, I know that we're supposed to read this story. And when the lawyer asks that question, we're supposed to shake our heads and, and go, you know, come on, man, you're, you're, about, to, you're about to get a whooping. Uh, but... If you're like me, you may have found yourself thinking, I mean, it's not an invalid question. Anyone? No? Me? Just? All right. That's fine. Uh, but, you know, God bless people like me and this lawyer because uh, it, gives, it gives Jesus an opportunity to make examples of us, and that is to the benefit of the entire church. So, you're welcome. Uh, because Jesus responds to this lawyer with this very famous parable. You know, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And let's not kid ourselves. This is a difficult parable. It is a challenging thing to hear. And I think most of us probably read this parable this way. We, we, we say, uh, uh, if we see someone in need, we have an option. We can either be like the, the two 
the two people who walked right on by and ignored someone in need, or we can be like the Samaritan and lend that person a hand. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we know that we're supposed to be the Samaritan in the story, but we're probably more likely the, the two religious figures uh, along the way, and, and then we get all, all guilty and meditate on our hypocrisy and, and go forth, you know, needing to, to white-knuckle mercy for our neighbors because uh, we've been doing such a bad job of it. And listen, that reading of this, of this passage uh, I suppose maybe has some, some degree of, of, of validity. I think Jesus wants us to get to the point where we're recognizing that our call is to live our life like the Samaritan uh, relative to our neighbor. Uh, you know, he, he does want to ignite a response in us. He's not telling us this parable so we can just nod our head and go, oh yeah, what a, what a cool thought. He wants us to engage with this, with this, this truth in a way that brings us nearer into holiness. Right? He wants us to be better neighbors to those who are in need of mercy. And so I think we could go down, down the avenue of reading ourselves in this story as, you know, okay, I'm, we're the two uh, religious authorities who uh, ignored the man and we need to work on becoming the, the Samaritan in the story. But if I'm, if I'm being honest, I think focusing on that at the, at, at the moment might be less productive to us um, because we, we can absolutely look into turning our attention and focus on being challenged by how to become better neighbors and, and, and loving and serving our, our enemies and those in need, but I don't think Jesus' primary attempt here is to shame us into white-knuckling our way through uh, through, through a life of, of sacrifice. I don't think he's trying, to, uh, he's trying to tell us, you know, I want you to feel really bad about yourself right now so that way you can, you can go and, and fix the, your problem. I think he's, he's trying to call each and every one of us into a deeper way of being, into a more beautiful expression of love and mercy towards those who need it. Because it's probably not difficult for us to figure out who our neighbors are, Right? Jesus makes it pretty clear, whoever you have mercy on, that's the person that you have let become your neighbor. But I think if we, if we don't recognize what that mercy is or why that mercy is, is necessary, then we're probably not really ever going to become the kind of people who look on those with need and have compassion. And that's where I think the church fathers are actually probably going to be very helpful to us. Because beautifully, a, a number of, of early church uh, leaders had a, had a very different reading of, of this story, right? They, when, when they would preach on, on this particular passage, they did not tell people, you know, the, the person that you should read yourself into the story is either the, the, the priest or the scribe. Uh, rather, they said, you should read yourself into this story as the person left abandoned on the side of the road that when we look at the story of the Good Samaritan, when we look at the one who has compassion on us, we should look at, at the work that Jesus did, how Jesus demonstrates for us a life of, of sacrifice, of looking upon us and having mercy. There's actually a very rich tradition of reading this story through that particular allegory. 
with, with all of the details being very intentional, the, the idea of uh, a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho is supposed to be represent, according to the church fathers, represents the fall of man. Uh, that getting uh, jumped and beaten on the road and, 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 and stripped naked is, is uh, man's torment at the hands of spiritual forces that have, that have ripped from us the, the, the immortal or everlasting life that God has intended for his people. And Christ comes along and he sees, he sees us in need and he gets down and he offers wine and he offers oil and he bears our burden for us and he takes us from the side of the road to the inn, which is the church, to be cared for and to be nourished. Uh, Clement of Alexandria actually had this to say about the parable that I, I find so beautiful and remarkable, uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't not share it. So speaking of, of the Samaritan, he says, who else can this be but the Savior himself? Or who more than he has pitied us, who have been almost done to death by the world rulers of the darkness with these many wounds, with fears, lusts, wraths, griefs, deceits, and pleasures? Of these wounds, Jesus is the only healer by cutting out the passions absolutely from the root he does not deal with the bare results, the fruits of bad plants as the law did, but brings his acts to the roots of evil. This is he who poured over our wounds, wounded souls the wine, the blood of David's vine. This is he who brought and is lavishing on us the oil, the oil of pity from the Father's heart. This is he who has shown us the unbreakable bands of health and salvation, love, faith, and hope. This is he who has ordered angels and principalities and powers to serve us for great reward because they too shall be freed from the vanity of the world at the revelation of the glory of the sons of God. Him, therefore, we must love equally with God. That last sentence actually caught me quite a bit off guard when I, when I read, him, therefore, we must love equally with God. Because that seems to be saying that when we read this story, the person that we should first recognize as our neighbor is the one who has made us his neighbor. We should recognize that we have been made Christ's neighbor by his work. That when Jesus tells the lawyer, go and have mercy on those who need mercy, he's doing so because such is what he has already done on our behalf. And here's the thing, I do, I do in fact think Jesus is telling us to become more like the Samaritan in the parable. But again, he's not telling us to white-knuckle our way to it through, uh, through a sense of guilt and shame. He's telling us that our love for our neighbor flows first from our recognition of his love for us. And that's a very, very big deal. Because when, when, when you have the, the two commandments, it's not like these are two discrete separate items on a list. It's not love God, check, and love your neighbor, check. It's that your love of your neighbor flows first and foremost from your love of God. If you do not have a love of God that is totally surrendered in, in soul, heart, soul, strength, and mind, you have no hope of ever truly loving your neighbor, of ever really being able to extend them mercy. 
But on the other hand, if you do have the, that love for God, there is no way that you are going to be able to extend anything but love and mercy to your neighbor. And that, I think, is why Jesus uses this parable first to make us recognize that we are the person left for dead on the side of the road, so that way we can focus our attention here. Because this right here is the picture, the model, and the blueprint for loving God and loving your neighbor. If we are wondering what does it look like to love God and love our neighbor, it looks like this. It looks like absolute, perfect sacrifice, which none of us are particularly capable of accomplishing. And yet because of Christ's mercy through our baptism, we are brought into this act. We are brought into this act of surrender of, 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 of death, and we are brought into a life of resurrection to be restored by his faithfulness, to be restored by his work, to recognize that when we were on the road left for dead, he came and expended that which he did not have to expend on our behalf, and by doing so, taught us what mercy looks like, taught us what love perfect love, sacrificial love, looks like. Because I think if we try to read the parable of the Good Samaritan as just another legalistic obligation of how we should adjust our improper conduct, we're going to miss entirely the fact that we were made neighbors before we made anyone else our neighbor. We were made part of the community and beloved people of God. And if we are going to be able to show the world mercy, it isn't because of our innate ability to fulfill a commandment better than others. It's rather an extension and an outpouring of that which we are focused on, of that which we are captivated by. And of course, again, we need to do the work of loving our neighbors, of extending mercy to everyone who needs mercy. Of course, that is not, uh, that is not something that I would ever uh, suggest we, we don't need to be doing. But unless the cross of Jesus Christ is the center of our lives, unless Christ and his work is the absolute object of our attention and devotion, we will never have a love worthy of offering to our neighbors. If we spend all of our time try, just trying to become the Good Samaritan and, and fail to recognize that we have been the person left for dead on the side of the road, we will, we will not have an appreciation of what the mercy is even for. But orienting our life toward the cross of Jesus Christ to his work and his mercy makes us see the world through the cross. It becomes the prism through which our, our view of those around us, of the world we live in, becomes, uh, becomes articulated, becomes defined. It becomes the, the, the way we see it, when we see it through the cross of Jesus. And I think that's probably what Paul was getting at last week's passage. Uh, when he says, you know, that I was, uh, uh, by the cross, I was, the world was crucified to me and, and, and I to the world, He's saying that our perceptions of the world and who we are in the world are completely upended by the cross and our attention 
refocused. It is in beholding the cross of Jesus that we are even able to see the need of our neighbor. Without this, we don't, we don't have an appreciation for what our neighbor's need even is. To know what mercy they need or why it's important that they be the recipient of mercy. It is because of the cross that we are able to appreciate why giving someone who is hungry bread is an act of mercy for their soul and not just their stomach. It's because of the cross that we're able to see why a prayer for someone who is uh, in, in, in a dire situation on the other side of the world is a real act of compassion and not a hollow gesture of self-posturing. And so, let's go forth and love our neighbors. Let's, let's see their needs and sacrifice of ourselves to meet them, to show mercy and expend of ourselves what, whatever we are called to. And to do so, let's ensure that we are orienting our focus and devotion to Christ. That, I will say, is one of the, the real benefits of getting to take the Eucharist together this morning is it is a allotted time that we have agreed we are going to sit together and remember the work that Jesus Christ accomplished in his death. And we need to be doing that. Our neighbors desperately need us to do so because they have needs that, that we... Sorry, let me, let me re-say that. Our neighbors need us to be focused on Christ because they need us to have a real and, and, and a true appreciation of, of the mercy that we have received so that we, we can have real and true mercy upon them. It does our neighbor no good if we go to meet their needs without having an appreciation of how our lives have been shaped by mercy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.